Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 well welcome back as we head into hour three it is a delight to do so with the hallman duo what did i come in too soon no you're perfect you're okay. always perfect you always direct me on where to come in on the Birdland. Uh, no 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 i i didn't have my audio on so i couldn't hear any of it oh okay well i came in perfect you did that's okay. what i said you came in <laughs> that is hugh hallman the former mayor of tempe attorney educator civic leader in Political town has been and we are joined also, as we uh, are delighted to be, by Lewis Holman, who is the Managing Director of Insight Analytics. Gentlemen, welcome back to the studio. Seth, it's always great to be here. If there were only any news to talk about. If only there were news, like, you know, the Speaker of the House being ousted oh. uh, as, we, as we sit here uh, thinking about such things. And rather than follow into that news channel, which everybody will be talking about for the next several days, what Lewis and I would like to do is maybe talk about the broader frame in which these conversations are taking place. Because arguably, the basis on which uh, Mr. McCarthy was ousted is that we have $30 trillion in debt that is mounted up in these United States, a very large debt load. And yet, if one looks at the debt load that families have taken on, it's equal or slightly higher than the, their share of the national debt. So it tells us that Americans have a taste for indebtedness. And that may be getting things worse. And the the table I'd like to set is that Lewis and I wanted to, we were debating all morning, talk about sort of the behaviors that are giving rise to a shaky economy that we as individuals can be responsible for, that there is government policy that has set the stage for that kind of behavior. But because Lewis being the data guy and those of you who are taking notes, get ready uh, uh, in the second half of this uh, hour. We're going to talk about the good news or the, the really more uplifting side of American life and what Americans are doing. Before we get to that, though, because we are numbers guys, I just wanted to make mention of a specific example of the left's inability to do math. And it happens to be on the tool of abortion. Uh, in the New York Times, a guest essayist, Jessica Valenti, who writes a uh, publishes a newsletter, Abortion Every Day, in the October 2nd, 2023 New York Times, writes, now Republicans are trying to redefine abortion itself. All right. Interesting. I wanted to see what it is um, uh, uh, Republicans yes. are doing to redefine abortion. And here is... Her argument, some Republicans have abandoned the term, quote, ban, unquote, when speaking about anti-abortion legislation, for example. Now they're pushing for a 15-week, quote, standard, unquote, on abortion, which, to be clear, would be a ban. I'm going to stop right there. Just about a month ago, you and I talked about the fact that uh, the American people are coming around and sort of congealing on the notion that you may not like abortion at all, but a 15-week ban sort of is a marker that people can understand and, and, and put up with, even if they're anti-abortion. So now she says that that, quote, 15-week standard on abortion, which, to be clear, would be a ban, unquote. Now, a 15-week uh, standard 
meaning that effectively you would have abortion available to you as long as you have the abortion before the end of the 15th week. She now says that's a ban. Why? Well, let me go on. Quote, a record 69% of American adults say abortion should be generally available and legal in the first trimester, period, unquote. So she's using that to make her point that Americans are outraged at the notion of a 15-week uh, standard, that that would be a ban. Madam, let's do the math. The typical gestation period for a human being is 40 weeks. One-third of 40 is 13.3 weeks. Are you that big an idiot that you don't know that a 15-week ban is actually slightly longer than the first trimester, the very point you're making you're that Americans support? Or, it's you uh, into the third week of the second trimester, doesn't it? Or are you just hoping that we're enumerate and blithering? Yeah. Well, what she's hoping is that the New York Times editorial staff is idiotic and blithering in, in numeric, and that all of her readers are, and that the readers of the New York Times are, because that's the thing that jumped off the page. I'm furious. They print this nonsense about somebody calling a 15-week standard of abortion as a ban, and yet it's exactly what she says she wants. You know, it's so funny. I've had some experience, you probably have too, writing op-eds for the New York Times, usually in other people's names. In fact, I think in all, in all cases, I don't think I've ever had one in my own name. And um, they are exquisite editors when it's a conservative. I mean, I have spent hours on individual 750-word op-eds, hours over every single jot and tittle of every sentence when it's a conservative. They, they just let this stuff fly. But under no definition of 15 is, is 15 weeks in the first trimester. Under no definition. Correct. That's correct. And if was three times 15 would be 45. That'd be a five-week extra period of, yeah. uh, of, uh, of carrying a child. And the polling is showing that most Americans are, as you said, working their way around supporting things like second trimester uh, illegality of abortion. But the fact of the matter is, in no other case would she make this argument. In no other in no other narrowing or, for a better word, would be regulating, in no other regulating of any constitutional right would she call it a ban. If there is a uh, curtailment or a regulation on free speech in certain zones, so, so a time, place, manner is the typical one, or perhaps uh, one could even talk about uh, fighting words or one could talk about incitement words, she would not call that a ban on free speech. Correct, unless you're a conservative, in which case you can't be at Arizona State University. Right. Oh, wait, I digress. Yeah. But now let's get to the main point of okay. it, because we've burned through half of our first segment. And Lewis and I wanted to get to, I think we both wanted to get to, this notion that there are concepts of entitlement that have gotten into our uh, societal soul in a way that is undermining a sense of our economy. And Lewis corrected me after we started our discussion that I are wrong, and we'll get to that. So it was, I'm going to premise, uh, my premise is that we have entitlement behavior going on because we have taken action as a government and set policy that we should never have set and never taken in the first instance. There are things that you do if you do them once, then everybody knows you might do them more than once, and then the games get started uh, to be played by those who would take advantage of the next opportunity. The op most obvious one is Reagan pointing at the camera and saying, I support amnesty. His quid pro quo was that we would fix the legal and illegal immigration systems so that we could have an amnesty one time and then the immigration system would be fixed. Only the first part of that 
deal got done. The the amnesty got put in place, but the immigration repair never got done, and we're still stuck in the same mess. Another example of that is hostages. You've talked significantly about the idea that if you uh, pay uh, to get hostages returned, you'll just get more hostages. Create a market. For hostage taking, correct. I believe you you like to uh, refer to an old poet's notion. Oh yeah, of, yeah. Rudyard Kipling's Donegald. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, sir. So uh, I, I do want to make a, a a quick caveat here. You know, while I I think that's really valuable to look at entitlement through the lens of the types of policies we make as a as a society and as a government to. Uh, uh, distribute tax dollars. I think there's also some other really key impacts uh, uh, going on here. And chief among them, I think, is the increasing networking of our society and the proliferation of more and more media. You saw it earliest in the, you know, uh, uh, the, the movie era, then with TV, and now subtly with, with social media proliferating every aspect of our lives uh, to an extent never before really imagined. And so now we have a portal with us basically at all times where we see you know the most decadent luxury broadcasted at us 24 7 and we're told continually that we must have some sort of moral failing if we can't achieve the same level of material bliss which is very interesting you know so so we're we're, we're more depressed and stressed than ever before in part i think because comparison is in fact the thief of joy and that we are now seeing a frankly unattainable uh, 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 image that is thrust in front of our faces and waved at us every day, where in previous generations such a thing would have been unimaginable. Well, you don't. You'd have to look across the street and and want to keep up with the Joneses. Now the street for every home is thrust in your face, and only the best parts of it. It's even like worse. Book. It's it, even it, worse because that the Joneses actually had that house and that car. What you're seeing on social media is what most people are not. That right. is not their daily routine. It, they are showing you only and exclusively the best moments of their lives when everyone else is routinely, as their workaday routine, comparing their insides to those outsides. It's, it's both of those problems combined. Not only are you seeing the, the inside of a whole different number of households that you never would have seen before, you're also seeing a curated, very whitewashed, optimized— Caricature, yeah. Exactly, caricature fake of, book. of society. It's a fake book. That's right. And not in the music, m- musical sense. That's correct. Let's— in the musical sense that we're hearing this, come back on the other side of the break with more of this. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are my guests. He is uh, the latter is the managing director of Insight Analytics. The former is the is an attorney and educator and a civic leader. Nothing past tense about that. We'll be right back. Has been. I don't know what it is about the Hallmans when they're here, where you get to take so many liberties, young David, with our bumper music. Do, do they look like? Non-regimented people, do they look like latitudinarians to you? Do they know that you're the $6 million man? I am not. I'm just worried about being called a latitudinarian, and now I have to check my zipper or something. Um, (laughs) With that said, uh, we started about this notion of entitlement behaviors because government policy does things that sets a table that says we'll do this just once and then – tells everyone we might do it again. And I gave you the big policy issues like uh, immigration reform or non-reform with amnesty um, and hostage, uh, buying hostages back and ending up with more of them. Let's bring it down to the day-to-day thing. And Lewis made a really fine point about how fake book uh, has caused us to move towards these behaviors. And they are things like, now we're hearing the hue and cry, no pun intended, for uh, student loan debt forgiveness. 
you see all these people with placards that they want their student loans uh, forgiven, their debt forgiven. We saw that initially in how we have changed the bankruptcy code to allow uh, credit card debt to be forgiven more easily. We saw in the 2007-2008 cycle, suddenly we are going to figure out how to help people with their mortgages uh, because they maybe use their home equity to get more money so they could buy a bigger car, they could buy jet skis, they could buy whatever. That kind of behavior has created, I believe, in our culture, this notion that we can uh, get everything we want today and it should be subsidized by somebody else. And I guess my caricature of that is looking at these people who want their student loan debts forgiven is to remind them that if they don't think their degree was worth paying for, why should their degree be worth my paying for it? Because we are forgetting, and this is what the McCarthy ouster was about, that we have $30 trillion in debt. Somebody has to make the money that pays the taxes to pay the government's debts and its expenditures. The $30 trillion is just the debt. Each year we have trillions of dollars of expenditures that are going on as well, all of which has to come from somebody who's made resources available to the government by creating wealth. That's the challenge we're in. And Lewis, I think, has noted in the prior segment, why don't you repeat it because it's a great point. Sure, absolutely. So, let me just bring this student loan issue into context a little bit more. You know, the, the median amount we're talking about is about $500 per month per person affected at the consumer level. And, you know, the, it's a really difficult policy issue to parse out because in, in some sense, there's a sympathetic case to be had. You have a bunch of young kids who at 18, I can remember being 18 and being a complete idiot even more than I agree, am now. Agree, agree, agree. Right, right, right. Absolutely. 18-year-olds are moron and they have no business deciding their futures. And yet, they were armed and given the uh, uh, ability to access hundreds of thousands of subsidized dollars and make really, really stupid investments. And frankly, they were sold a bad bill of goods by a number of different institutions. And so I think it's perfectly reasonable that if some of them were fraudulently or or, or uh, uh, hurt in some sort of, of negligent fashion by the system that we've set up, then what if we took all of those universities issuing these degrees and receiving the subsidized dollars, and we looted their endowments to make up the difference. So th- let's parse that. Lewis makes the valuable and important point. We have created a system. This is government policy creating a system where it has the appearance of nearly free money. We subsidize the payment of college tuition through loans and grants that students can easily get, families can easily get, and everybody is sold by universities explaining, if you have a college degree, this is how much more valuable your time will be. They don't then parse the fact that getting a sociology art degree highly likely is not going to get you the same kind of uh, economic return as a different kind of degree might. I can also remember in my economics classes at college, one of the very first things that they did is they justified the value of a college degree to us using econometrics. And the very fun thing about that calculation is that they didn't actually uh, include the uh, uh, the matriculation rate. So they didn't include the fact that fewer than 100% of the students graduate within four years, and that actually dilute, denutes the, the value of the college degree. And increasingly, we see that, that fewer and fewer students graduate within four years. They have to take I think we looked up the average the other day. It's now six years. I right. thought it was five. It's now gone to six. Absolutely. Talk about inflation. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of energy and a lot of momentum on college campuses to tell you that college is a really, really good deal, and yet 
they will massage those numbers just as much as any other you know, stakeholder will when they're in an ethical gray area if they're impaled on the horns of dilemma. And you have both the private sector and public sector doing the same thing. So then you, you have price discrimination, which is the kids whose parents can afford the full tuition pay that full tuition. That number is X. But the actual rack rate, that is the, the, the street rate, is 2X. So X gets paid by those who can afford it. The 2X is the number that the federal government sees as the actual tuition that they would like to charge. And what happens is the government subsidizes to help students who cannot otherwise afford it to get closer to that 2X number. And then that excess money is scraped off to provide scholarships to those people at the very bottom of the economic ladder who can't afford it. So we've got this system in which universities are using the government subsidy to then make themselves look good by being inclusive by providing scholarships, and that scholarship money is coming out of federal tax dollars and federal loans. Why couldn't the Bureau of Economic Research Labor Department put out a yearly analysis, they already do, a yearly analysis of what degrees offer uh, the best prospects for earnings over the next two, five-year horizon, tie student loans ratcheted to that very number, and then look with what we have now at the $800 billion in endowments that our colleges and universities are sitting on and not touching because they have ripped off the American people with these workers. And because here's as Lewis. Thomas Sowell very well noted, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is, accept- is not in the business of actually correcting economic problems. They're in the business of reporting data on economic problems. If they actually corrected the problems, they would have nothing to report on and they'd be out of a job. There is no incentive from the Bureau of Labor Statistics perspective to actually fix any of these issues. Now, Lewis, I'm going to get you to say what your concept was for how we could then establish a market for this problem exactly. How do you? How would you uh, fix student loan availability and grant availability with respect to degrees? Right. So uh, what, what I would do is I, I would have a mechanism by which uh, the colleges themselves are obligated to refund students uh, if they're... Uh, matriculation rates are below a certain threshold, and if their average salaries and placements are below a certain threshold. So you have to pay for what you advertise. If you're going to advert, here's the number my college says we're going to get, here's what we're going to have, and on average, this is what we're going to achieve, and if we don't achieve that, those students who attended here will get money back. Right. And and what, it, for it, example. It, additionally, we, we could means test the allowable amount of, of tuition uh, that one is eligible to receive, or, or the amount of scholarship one is eligible to receive, or... or, or uh, assistance based on what degree one chooses. Therefore, you're not spending 20 times the expected earnings potential of your degree trying to then secure your education for that degree. Let me also intellectualize the point about whether we need to have a rethinking of the necess- necessity of college and career readiness. Which I'm going to propose that we have another show on this because the entire point of one of the school groups that I helped found and worked uh, was that students should be prepared for life right. and that it is a failure of our education system that K-12 doesn't get you enough of an education that will allow you to succeed in life at a, at a level that is appropriate. Right, because you should be at high school graduation as a 17 or really an 18-year-old prepared to do all the things that life will ask of you, including voting, including possibly joining the military. Impl- okay, And getting a job that is enough right. to get you through life. Correct. And we fail. Let me take a quick commercial break. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I don't know if you know this, but uh, David went to a Margaritaville restaurant, a literally a Margaritaville restaurant over the weekend, and he brought me back. There's a, a little Margaritaville blender added to my accoutrement-filled desk of all the things that 
find me. The the finest desk in this building because it <laughs> demonstrates what this station is about. So I support you in collection collecting the material that you display at your desk. It's it's quite, it's 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 a must see on the tour here. Yeah. Well, it's almost as good as uh, any one of the days of David's lapels. Yeah. Today's pen is uh, Mondale Carter or Carter Mondale. I yeah. Guess, why'd you do that going. today? Uh, because uh, Jimmy Carter turned uh, well. It's it's kind of uh, a weird way of saying this, but Jimmy Carter celebrated his last birthday over the past weekend. You, d- you don't know that. I would be willing to wet- bet a lot of things that Jimmy Carter will not be celebrating another birthday. You know, Lewis Holman. I could you pull Holman. up the Social Security actuarial tables and yeah. tell you if that's actually more likely than not. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you forgot but, who's yeah, in studio with yeah, us. Yeah, but once you hit that age, then the, the, the tables change dramatically. It's quite, quite impressive. Um, uh, so uh, yes. talking about where we are, yeah. we have... Uh, this notion that uh, the public uh, decisions that we're making as a government and providing policy choices is impacting people's choices in their daily lives. Uh, just before the break, you talked about, you know, high school no longer trains a student to get a good job after high school. We do such a bad job in our high schooling uh, that students now feel that they have to go to college. Then we have universities and colleges marketing to students that their college is so great that all you have to do is get in our doors and you'll do so well in life. And that doesn't quite always add up. And so those sociology students that have the art minor and are going to to uh, uh, go into some kind of therapy services, uh, then are disappointed that there aren't very many jobs that pay well enough to to pay back their student loans. Lewis's point would be that, frankly, one should be very, very careful about what one does as a dumb person at 18, and that we should be very careful about uh, allowing a funnel of trillions and trillions of dollars to be spent on fantasies backed by uh, avarice. Fantasies backed by avarice is one thing, and you're right about that, and I like that. Let's write that down. Fantasies backed by avarice. How the about avarice thing, backed by fantasy? I'm not sure which way it actually goes. Yeah, my, yeah. There's a little bit of both in there. Yeah, it it, it is. But uh, but the other thing too is is the rethinking of uh, of attending college in the first place. I mean, it it, it colleges, with the exception of like six. And maybe in certain colleges with different majors, but colleges by and large are um, are, are are basically uh, libertarian. It's 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 the worst form of libertarian lifestyle wedded to the worst form of Maoist ideology. You know, it's it 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 is not a place where you send a child to further nurture and grow in everything you taught them for the first eighteen years. It's a place you are paying or a place they are paying to unlearn everything that they were taught for the first 18 years. And they happen to be at the same time when it comes to normative absolutes like academic freedom and First Amendment rights and freedom of religion rights happens to be some of the least free places in the country. I, 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 I seriously have rethought my my views that college is necessary. Well, in I, fact, I think by and large it's mostly harmful. So uh, I'm going to let Lewis speak for himself. But you and I had a, a blessed uh, college right. career, I think. Right. And that the shame we have and adults our age have is that we think that that's what's still going right. on, and it is not. And uh, uh, you know the the Tempe Prep model that w- that is now also shared by Great Hearts and other schools, Great Book schools, and others that have a fairly intense curriculum. 
was built on the idea that we could take average kids and they would get pushed through this system and be educated well enough that they would survive well on their own once they uh, once they matriculate. And Lewis's point uh, about uh, having gone to that school was so. I actually have a fairly weird perspective on college. I, I went to a number of institutions, uh, everything from community colleges here locally to fill up credits to our own Arizona State to a very uh, uh, very good uh, liberal arts school in California. Named to what? My, Claremont McKenna. That's right, to which Mr. Liebson and I both, uh, we both attended and both graduated. Right. And I, I, I found what was very interesting about my perspective on college in the U.S. is that the quality of education is actually almost identical at all three of those institutions. Um, it's really not that different. You get a little more. You get a little more speed at the at the elite institution because the the typical firepower of the students is is a bit higher, but the courses are no different. What you pay for ultimately is the ability to network within the student body, and this is something that the Harvards and the Princetons and the Yales of the world know very very well. And in all instances, we have, and we've discussed this before a couple of years ago, the sheepskin effect, that the the value of the college degree is not the education we any longer are putting our students through. It is just that they were of the quality that they could get into a school, and therefore when they get the degree coming back out, everybody can identify that. And with machine learning and AI, now the computer is checking the box when they look through your resume about whether or not you attended a school. Yep, that's exactly right. We'll be right back. It's actually such a beautiful song. It's a little bit of a sad song. It's about a uh, peripatetic uh, DJ who uh, goes from city to city and uh, thinks about uh, one girl he had to leave behind. And there's a tremendously potent lyric in there. The price of finding me was losing you or something like that. It's very, it's a powerful song, the whole thing. Anyway. You really are in a maudlin mood, aren't you? Am I? Yeah. That's all right, because we were talking about difficult challenges. I guess that means we have to come in with mod. Uh, uh, very good. Um, difficult challenges we have in this economy and uh, that we've set policies that are making exacerbating the economic difficulty. So we have, in my view, an economy that's slowing. We have talking heads talking about uh, because they want to that there's no recession in the offing because we're approaching a democratic reelection cycle, they're hoping. Uh, and yet we have uh, increases in credit card debt, which is masking uh, in uh, the slowdown of the economy. That's also exacerbating inflation. We see government spending exacerbating inflation. We see other kinds of data suggesting that things are slowing down. And now we have uh, strikes at auto companies uh, for better wages and hours. And I will tell you that even Milton Friedman will tell you that that is not the cause or source of inflation, that government spending and and, and printing paper is what does that. And that's also true with credit card debt because it's now private companies printing money. That said, Lewis launched on me this morning about the fact that I that I are wrong, that it is not the case that we ought to be uh, distressed over how hard Americans are working and that uh, the large percentage of Americans are somehow on the dole in one way, form or another, either using their credit cards to buy their toys or what have you. And instead, he he corrected me with a series of data that I think we ought to celebrate. So. The median U.S. worker actually works about 1,750 hours per year. Uh, that is considerably more than most uh, wealthy countries. Uh, it's lower than all but a few OCEID countries. Um, 
I can give you some context for that. So if the U.S. is at about 1,750 hours, England is at about 1,550 hours average worked. Germany is amongst the lowest in the world with 1,350 hours worked. You've got uh, uh, places like Mexico and Cambodia clocking in just north of the 2,000-hour mark and places like Russia at about 1,900 hours. So Americans actually are working a, quite a lot, actually. Um, it's very, very interesting. If you actually look at a take a more historic view over working, um, we actually are working more than at any time before about 1800. Although we, of course, know that about that time the Industrial Revolution took hold and things totally changed for our species. Before the Industrial Revolution, you know, if we think about medieval Europe, right, the grueling life of a peasant. Well, a peasant in medieval Europe would typically work about 1400 hours a year. So right about where the Germans even less are than Germans, yes, right. right. So so um, we actually work about thirty percent more than our ancestors do. We have, however, materially much much better standard of life. Obviously, there there are things about our existence now, air conditioning, the light know, bulb changed this that, that would have been completely you know that, that would have made you richer than the king of England. You know, from a, from a lifestyle perspective, and so. What we have, and I, I, I think one of the broader themes that we talk about on this show is what are the trade-offs of life? You know, we're not in the position of wanting to say that everyone should be working 60 hours a week, all working, no play makes uh, uh, Lewis a very dull boy. Um, At least his father. Or, yes. Uh, and so what we, what we instead should think about maybe is that we are working more than, than is historically the norm for us is potentially a reason that we're, we're stressed out and burned out. Uh, as a society and as a culture among sort of the lonely ship, lo- loneliness and other reasons we sort of were talking about earlier. But we're not a lazy people. We are not an entitled people at all. And so what we should think about is how do we want to orient ourselves, our societies, and our lives so that we are able to have goals that are achievable and meaningful for ourselves rather than something that's unattainable, materialistic, and wouldn't make us happy even if we got there. No one needs another Lambo, another Ferrari, and yet that's all we seem to to chase very often. At least that's very often what we're told to chase. And so I take solace in the fact that, you know, we are not a lazy people. We are a a hardworking bunch. You know, we're we're out there fighting the good fight, and yet um, we are working less now than than we did in the the very recent past. Um, Working hours in the U.S. peaked right around uh, 1920 or so at about 2,000 hours and have been on a steady decline ever since. They were at about 1,800, 1,850 hours at the turn of millennium. So we've lost about 100 hours a year for the uh, the median working hours. Um, So we we are slowly getting more and more of ourselves back. Of course you're... Yeah, go ahead. uh, Just that it comes with a trade-off, and that is the piece that we really want to talk about. The values of this society have been warped somewhat by government policy, but also this fake book life, where you have simultaneously people showing only the best moment of their lives at the given moment, and people seeing that and feeling worse about their own situation. All of that says that we probably need to come to grips with what do we as individuals want within this society that provides us the freedom to achieve that? Of course, this ties in, too, to some of the welfare or subvention society you were talking about, because I think while it's eminently true what you said about people who are working, they are working more than they used to. They are working more than they did in 1800, but more people are not working. 
That's by choice true. because they can live off government subvention and they can live uh, under their parents' roof or they can live in a communal setting in a garage or in a basement with nothing but screen time and, by the way, painkillers. Your, your this point this is a record high. There are more eligible working age men not working now than ever before. Of those who are working, they are working more than ever before, mm-hmm. but we have more eligible people not working. And that's part of the Welfare Entitlement Society, too. Indeed. Indeed. And and those are all bits of the policy issues we really need to discuss as a society. But I think, to go back to Lewis's point, those who are working are working diligently. Right. They are right. demonstrating the kinds of values that the society has been based on. And at this stage, given the level of impact, emotional and, and uh, psychological impact of fake book uh, and the amount we do work, that it is perhaps time for those of us who are working to analyze and recognize we can make trade-offs that are different. Why do I say that? I'm back to this point. If your college degree wasn't worth you paying for it, why is it that I'm supposed to pay for it? And those of us who are in the trenches working and paying taxes are the ones who have been carrying these burdens, and that's why the anger exists. And most of that anger is on the right side of the universe because those are the people who continue to espouse and live the values that they'll work each day and contribute to their society and raise their families and pay their taxes. That's, that's the piece we, ought, we really ought to celebrate is those people still exist. They're still working hard, and we need to help them. Uh, L- Lewis, let me have you conclude on the other side of that, this break, if that's okay. That, 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 that was a hugely important analysis. And it is, to me, a fundamental unfairness. Would you call it a free rider problem in what you were describing? It is a fundamental unfairness and immorality that someone who had learned to trade at age 18 forward and is now making 90 or dollars $120,000 a year is being asked to pay for the person who chose instead to get a degree in literature, English literature, at that where they don't teach Shakespeare who cannot find a job. Let me have you guys uh, conclude on this thought when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Thank you to Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, who have been my guests, our guests uh, for this hour. Lewis, there was a lot thrown on the table. I'm going to leave it to you to clean the table. All right. I'll see if I can do that. So we, we talked about quite a few things this hour, uh, really centering around uh, the perception of uh, U.S. entitlements and government policy and government spending and how we should really think about orienting our society so that going forward we're able to uh, uh, navigate our, our, our problems more effectively and then stop falling into some of these same spending traps over and over again. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about the fact that Americans actually are are fairly hardworking, that, that they uh, really do, uh, of those that, that are still continuing to work, we, we are carrying the burden mutually. And part of the issue that we have as, a, as an electoral force is that we are unable to make the point broadly to the electorate that we feel their pain without pandering to their pain, which is something that the left does very often. And we're, we're fighting against sort of the same cultural inertia that has Republicans stereotyped on The Simpsons as being cartoon villains in a scary castle overlooking the craggly mountain-struck peaks. Uh, and so we, we need to move away from that. And so take the student loan piece. You know, there was a bad bill of goods sold, and the a broad number of people are, are really, really hurting from that. So how can we as sensible fiscal conservatives put things right and settle the accounts as they should be? 
Well, we can make those who orchestrated this uh, uh, negligence, the the school systems themselves, who sold the bad bill of goods, who sold the liberal arts degrees as if they were a fabulous investment, we can make them pay for it. They have big billion dollar endowments. We can get quite a bit out of that money and use that to start uh, 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 making people whole. Now, Overall, though, I, I just want to, want, to, want to think through very carefully. We're able to have these conversations with one another very reasonably and very effectively. Um, the challenge happens when we have, it, uh, have these things opened up to a wider audience. It's so easy for us to take the weakest version of the other side's argument, which we ourselves can do here even on the show sometimes. It's easy to dunk on Ooh. the New York Times if they have morons doing their writing for them. But that's not the best version of their argument. And if we can beat the best version of the other side's argument, show that we're thinking carefully and diligently about what's wrong in our society, and show a real path forwards, I don't know how you can beat that at the polls. Amen. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, Hugh Holman. Um, Thank you, David Dahl. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed.